0: Canyoneering is a dangerous sport where a 20% chance of rain means you'd be better off planning a picnic. The hosts of this podcast will soon be replaced with ChatGPT as they are more artificial than intelligent. This podcast will be nominated for the 2024 People's Choice Award in the Fiction category as soon as we submit the paperwork. And now, the unqualified hosts of the Canyon Tech Podcast, Wayne and Vin. Welcome back, everyone. This is Wayne, Vin. Greet our fans.
1: Hello, it's good to be back.
0: We did a canyoneering rendezvous in the great Pacific Northwest. That is the topic for today. We're going to talk about how these canyons are different in both the geography and the risks than what we're used to in the desert southwest. So give us a couple of thoughts Vin on how they're different and then we'll get into the
1: details. Well, I guess the first thing is that sure is a lot of water in the Pacific Northwest, especially I think we were in like the Rainier area. And so it was it was a lot of fun. The water makes it super interesting. A lot of, you know, like the way that you dress, but also kind of was nice that like we're used to carrying like two, three liters of water at a time. So that was super nice to lose that weight. I definitely got a lot out of learning how some of the techniques and the teamwork that use varies a little bit.
0: Yeah. So we'll talk about those techniques today and obviously wet versus dry. You've got the cold versus the hot of the desert and how you're going to approach that. The other thing that we found just as a preface here to our conversation is that the Pacific Northwest community had an interesting view of desert canyoneers. First of all, I didn't know that we were a separate group as a desert canyoneer VIN, but I guess we are. And so the interesting thing was they seemed to form their opinion on a few vocal canyoneers, uh, some of the OGs of canyoneering and their Facebook posts. So unfortunately we're all getting a bad rap because of some arguments online. Their impression is that all we do in the desert is argue about techniques and we have bolting wars, um, which in our experience is not the case, but I can see how folks who are a bit outside of that could get that impression. But I will say in the positive for the Pacific Northwest community, they seemed very intent on developing promoting, educating best practices for rigging, things like decontamination between canyons, which we'll talk about the reasons, and then just making sure that there is very good canyon design in the way that they bolt and those types of things that we'll talk about as well. So overall, a great rendezvous, very well organized. Amazing community of people up in the Pacific Northwest, and we very much enjoyed our time there. I'm going to start with one thing, and that is there is a terminology difference. So there's canyoning, which will often refer to wet canyons versus canyoneering, which often refers to dry canyons.
1: Nobody cares, Wayne.
0: That's true. So we'll continue just to say canyoneering. That's what we're used to. It'll be an all-encompassing term for today. Let's jump into some of the canyon differences. Obviously, the canyons are wet. Water is flowing the entire way. Most of the time, the approaches were short, so we jumped right into it, and the water was cold. You'd have earlier in the season, some snow runoff, and it's just higher elevation. So you got to worry about the cold. How do we handle that, Vin?
1: I think you're going to be talking about neoprene. Um, And then for me, I thought it was a big advantage to be able to do that in layers. So in general, I was running between three and five mils of neoprene and then had the ability to kind of remove a couple of millimeters or add them as needed. Now, you'll remember that I think when we were prepping for the Pacific Northwest at one point that they were saying that they were running up to like 10 mils sometime, which seems crazy. But having been in there, I think it is kind of interesting. Over time, you might be comfortable, but at first, but then as you start staying still, like the cold kind of is additive, right? Like it adds up. There was a lot more swimmers. This specifically for the cold aspect, it was the fact that the water is moving, right? So I think that, you know, like by design, the wetsuits hold the water near you so that it gets warm. But now like when you're in a waterfall, like all that, you're just constantly getting flushed by this near ice cold water. that was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, we did relatively short canyons and uh, I did get cold each day, at least a little bit along the way. The other thing that was interesting was how slippery it was in the stream. So each of the canyons we did on the different days had different moss or algae in the water. Some was more slipperier than others. Some you couldn't even tell what was going to be slippery and what was going to be nice and grippy for your shoes And so it made walking in and around the streams really unpredictable and dangerous. The takeaway that I had was everybody falls. The people, at first I thought I was just clumsy because I came from the desert. I wasn't used to walking in the streams. But at some point I would see everybody fall, slip. So it was just a matter of how quickly you were able to do it, how gracefully you were able to do it without hurting yourself. What's the other thing that makes that important then as we're walking through slippery rocks and water Ben.
1: The amount of protection you're wearing, right? Like I think here in the desert, a lot of times, if we're on a long stretch, I'll take off my helmet and stuff like that. But I think if I was going back to the Pacific Northwest, not only would I recommend wearing a helmet, but I might start adding extra gear, like knee pads and elbow, you know, elbow guards.
0: So as we get into the rigging techniques, there are some differences that we saw in the anchors. So a lot of times there is no webbing or chains linking the anchors. Tell me a little bit, Vin, about the logic there and why that's the case, as opposed to in the desert southwest, we almost always have webbing or chains that are left behind on all of our anchors that are bolted anyway.
1: Right. I think that's exactly what we're used. It's going to be probably two bolts connected somehow, either with webbing or with chain. And that's not the case in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And why they do it, I thought was super interesting. Since we're in the water flow, as the water flow sometimes floods and gets to higher levels, that constant movement is either bringing down debris or the water itself is kind of moving chains around and that can cause damage to the integrity of the bolt. They're gonna look a little bit differently in how they place it. And so we're gonna place it for, you know, the strength of the rock and how the start is gonna act. And I think when you're placing in the Pacific Northwest, you're paying more attention to one, making sure that it's out of the water flow, you don't connect them so that there's nothing loose to be able to caught on. And then in addition to keeping it out of the water flow, you're also trying to put it in a place where you can see the repel. So you have visual communication with what it is they're going through, what they need, and like when they finish.
0: Yes. And even if you can't see the person who's actually repelling, you do want to have a line of sight to someone at the bottom. So you might have a spotter that's a little bit further out from the wall. And then that way they can just signal back up to you if there's trouble or someone is off rope. There's other signals that we'll talk about as well. But being able to see those hand signals, the person who goes down first may tell you to take the rope up or down a little bit, and as I said, help keep watch over other repellers that are going down on your team. The other thing that means is a lot of times the anchors are higher to keep them out of the high water flow and then also closer to the edge. And so it's often not comfortable for someone to be standing there and anchor managing, as we call it, in order to release the repeller, um, move the rope up or down, and those kinds of things. So sometimes not ideal for a person who has to be there and monitor the situation but it is good for a lot of other reasons and we came to appreciate that over time i mentioned the anchor manager so tell me
1: what is an anchor manager vin and what do they do an easy way to to say it is is how it's different from us in in the desert like in the desert we will normally sequence through repels so the person sets up the anchor goes down and then keeps going forward and eventually there's some kind of rotation but with anchor management, the person who sets it up will stay there the entire time. And then the team goes through, and then the anchor manager is the last person to go down after having assisted everyone through. And this does offer a number of benefits. They're going to go up, and they're going to set up an anchor, and they're going to try and do it in, in serene, right? So that's solid, equalized, redundant, and, and, and no extension. And so for an example, approach the two unlinked bolts and then connect them with a double-length sling and then maybe girth hitch a carabiner at the midpoint or the point of you know the direction of the pull of the rappel to create a master point. Then they would put the rope through and use some kind of releasable system, like the like a figure eight block, like a an EMO depending on the situation, or a Munter Mule overhand. And then they're going to set the rope length. They can do their best guess at first and then the person that goes down will modify it in addition so that now the persons are the people are going down the anchor manager is always there but the nice thing too is that he's the one who set it up he knows the system that he designed and you know theoretically why he designed it so he is probably best qualified at that time to effectuate a quick release and solve the problems
0: yeah let's talk about the blocks for a second so you mentioned the emo so you're taking a figure eight descender not to be confused with a figure eight knot so you have your figure eight descender that is set up as a block. So there's a couple of different ways to wrap that. The eight mule overhand is you bring it through a specific way, create a mule and do an overhand. So conceptually, it's like the MMO for the last two pieces to that, but you're, but, but it is a block that's in the system. And then obviously you would pull off the overhand and pop the mule in order to be able to lower somebody There's another set of wraps where you come through a couple of times um, that they call a compact secure. There's some debate around whether that slips or not. There's different variants of that that may slip more or less. The downside to the compact secure is that sometimes it is hard to unwrap or you get some pinching in a way that requires you to yank on that figure eight to get it unpinched. So that can be a, a potential struggle. Again, we're talking about water flow and timeliness, and so you wanna make sure that you can make that go and go fast. And the other type that we would suggest people look up, my favorite is the Euro eight. So you're going through the figure eight as you normally would if you were descending a canyon with it as your descender. And then if you have like the Petzl-Hewitt where the smaller hole is still relatively large, you can pull a bite through and another bite and another bite and a bit of a macrame if you will, and then clip that. It becomes a very simple, I guess that would be a series of hitches that you can clip off, and it's easy to see that it's done correctly, and it's easy to pop uh, those bites through each other in order to be able to release somebody. So that's the one I prefer. Then you talked about the MMO, also uh, very standard for releasable as well. It is for purposes of making sure you've got releasable. Those are your two best choices, the figure eight block or the MMO. And so that's what you're going to be using. The other thing I would say Vin, is that that anchor manager has to be aware and confident that that rigging that they did will really release. By that, I mean, you have to make sure that you've got with your sling and three beaners and everything else that you've got going on, you're clipped into it. Somebody who walks up is clipped into it. So you've got this mess of equipment that's all over these anchors. You have to make sure that that repel rope isn't pinching things or the sling itself is not pinching the eight in a way that would prevent you from quickly releasing it and making sure you've got the lower in place because that's why you're standing there. That's why you're rigged releasable in the first place. And unlike in the desert, time is of the essence when the repeller is in water and in trouble. So let's talk a little bit about the water flow and why it changes the way that we're rigging, we're rigging releasable, and how we're approaching the canyon. So the first thing, Vin, is obviously the water levels in these streams will change, and what do we have to pay attention to?
1: The the water levels changing was kind of different for me. In fact, they would do this thing where we would get to like kind of driving past the canyon, then we would pull over and look at part of the canyon. And then they had these reference photos. And these reference photos, you could look at the canyon and then look at the reference photo, and it would tell you like how high the water was. And that changed how difficult the canyon is. And I think some of that is based on like what time of year it is, like how much snow is melting, how much rainfall there has been recently. But that's not something that you and I deal with. I think if we looked at a picture of one of the canyons we do, the picture would be the same for the last 10,000 years. In the Pacific Northwest, I think having the, the dynamic nature of the canyons and the difficulty changing over time. And and specifically like one day it's easy. And the next day it's got like death hydraulics.
0: We had some of our teammates who do Pacific Northwest canyons talk about how they had to exit the canyon at certain points when they got to a rappel and they saw the hydraulics, they saw how fast the flow was and they realized that, you know, swimming through that or staying out of it, uh, would be really unmanageable. And so they just ditched out in the middle of that canyon. The other thing I would say is that because there's more trees and you've got water and trees fall in, that you've got log jams. And so these log jams may have been there for years and maybe they've built up or released all the time. And so we actually had one of our teammates kick down some logs. And so it happens. You have to be very careful because, as you said, it's a very dynamic situation when you're adding to or subtracting from those log jams over time. So let's talk about the water flow itself. When there are problems, the biggest challenge is a person can drown very quickly. And so you're trying to do things to manage and avoid that situation. So that includes when you're on rappel, you get stuck under a flow. Maybe you got flipped upside down for some reason. And so you're getting waterboarded and you're trying to write yourself. There's a couple of solutions. We talked about the one, which is rigging releasable. What's another thing to help minimize those problems when on rappel in the, in the flow Vin?
1: I'll remind you that like, I don't necessarily feel since I'm like connected it through my chest harness, but I did like what they did with, uh, either zip lining or throwing the packs down. I think what winds up happening is like that waterfall catches the back. And since you're a little more top heavy with, the, with weight on your upper half of the body, it is much more likely that you'll like flip upside down.
0: Yeah, so throwing or zip lining those bags is important. So the other thing to think about and the dangers is when you're on rope in the water or the hydraulics. And so some of that could be getting off of the rope um, at the bottom of a rappel and also the danger of entanglement. So we're used to just throwing down in the desert enough rope to make sure that we got to the bottom. And frankly, the more the better to make sure it's on the bottom. This is different. This is you wanna make sure that you're not being tangled underwater with rope. So if I throw down an extra, 20 feet of rope. Imagine that swirling in a hydraulic van. Now I've rappelled into it and I'm trying to get off of my descender and I've got this rope swirling around my leg and the water stream is pushing me downstream and I'm now being pulled under it. That would be a mess. So what's our best solution for managing that and preventing that situation?
1: The best solution, I think, is setting the rope length accurately. All of us over time as canyoneers develop that ability to flake out a certain amount of rope. But as a desert canyoneer, let's say I wanted to flake out 150. In reality, I'm kind of flaking out to 160 just because I want a little bit extra so I don't have to deal with, you know, somebody being 10 feet short. And I learned very quickly when they were there, they were like, no, if you're going for 150, you know, actually set it for like 135. Go 10 feet short and plan to lower than the last 15 feet because that's how serious they take the risk of too much rope causing entanglement.
0: So the ideal obviously is for everybody to rappel off the end of the rope right above the water so you don't have that kind of struggle. The other thing I'd say is that was very important and interesting is to have what I would call swift water skills. So being able to read the water, understanding where to go, where not to go. So things like if you're even just walking in a stream and it's above your Above your knees, there's the danger of foot entrapment. So that's where when I'm walking, my foot goes in between two rocks. I start to stumble and the stream is pushing me enough that it's actually pushing my body and therefore my head into the water and so that is a very dangerous situation in swift water they would tell you if you fell out of a raft to never try to stand up until your butt is hitting the ground you don't have that choice obviously when you're walking through a canyon because you've got to keep moving and so it's really just being careful and watching out for each other the other thing we have to watch for in the swift water are hydraulics and the water flow so you've got the stream that's going down and there's little potholes, so you're creating eddies with the water. And so crossing those eddy lines, either getting out of the main flow or getting into the main flow so you can continue downstream is very important when you're swimming. So there's various techniques that you need, not the least of which is actually reading the water so you can understand where you're going or in the case of strainers or other kinds of danger spots where you don't wanna go. So let's talk about the other aspect of anytime you're rappelling down when there's this nice stream with you, Is there's a water flow and the waterfall is noisy. So you can't hear anything. So tell us how we overcome those challenges.
1: Could not believe how difficult and different communication was inside the wet canyons. Let's say you and I do Ingolstadt. That's a 300 foot rappel. I can still hear when you say off rope. When we were in the Pacific Northwest, like you could be 15 feet away from me and I could not hear anything. And so that was super different. The methods of communications that weren't already established, like the official ways, because sometimes you and I would make it up, did not work at all. I had no idea what you were trying to say. And so I think that the system that is in place for communications is highly effective using like whistles and hand signs.
0: Yes. Let's talk about the whistles. The way that they like to remember or suggest that you remember them is via the syllables. So stop would be one blast. Off rope is two blasts. Lower rope or give more rope would be three. And then take up some rope is four. So that's what we used when we were at the rendezvous. And then if you were in some serious trouble, you would either just do constant whistling or six blasts. And that was a sign of distress I will say what was interesting is that the American Canyoneering Academy, ACA, actually has a slightly different set of whistle commands. They would suggest three long blasts, long blasts for trouble. They use two short blasts for up rope and three short blasts still for lower rope. The key here is you just got to make sure as a team, you are in agreement and maybe review before you get into the canyon exactly what you're going to be doing for both hand signals and for whistle signals, because both, as you said, are very important. Hand signals, let's talk about what those look like. We discussed a little bit why it's important to get into line of sight with the anchor manager. So either you, as the person who just rappelled down, needs to communicate visually, or again, maybe there's a spotter that's standing on the bank in line of sight with that anchor manager that can communicate how that person is doing. They got down okay and they're fine.
1: Yeah, hand signals were definitely the best, right? I mean, even with the whistles, sometimes you'd get a little bit confused. If there were, Let's say there was two rappels. You couldn't necessarily tell which whistle was for your rappel. Hand signs definitely helped with that. The ones that we were using in the rendezvous was stop, was just a flat palm outward, kind of like a, like a traffic cop. Okay, is the same as the divers, actually, which I thought was kind of cool, where you're making like a semicircle, putting the fist to the top of your head up, like up for up rope was like twirling your finger in an upward motion. And then down was the same, but you're pointing, uh, you know, towards the ground. And then there was stuff like, you know, hazard. I think there was like an X. You point positive, right? So you want them to go this way. You're not pointing at the hazard. Tell them which way to go.
0: We also had signals for saying, I'm not okay. Or, hey, throw me the pack or throw me a rope bag. Putting your hand on your forearm for a slippery rock or a tree. Showing that you wanted to zip line something, you know, zip line a rope bag down to me. Those were all very important. Again, making sure you go over those with the team, especially if they're not used to those types of canyons and those signals, it was very important and useful when we were at the rendezvous. Let's talk about a few other random issues with the water flow. Throwing our packs, throwing a rope bag vins, what's the potential issue there?
1: One of the dangers was like you'd throw your pack down and nobody was ready to receive it and then it would just like wash away.
0: Yeah, and then wearing your pack in a waterfall, we talked about the pressure there that could flip you jumping into the water so you got a lot of hidden hidden dangers there rocks and sticks and tree limbs so even if there's no rocks in that pool maybe there's now a tree there from the last rainfall so we would always have someone go down first someone who didn't want to jump in the water would ideally check the area to make sure that it's safe and deep also you've got all those dangers plus more when you're doing a slide tell me about a slide van i think you did one there
1: I did a pretty reasonable size slide. I I thought it was probably like 25, 30 feet. We were doing the slide. Somebody had already cleared it. The risk versus the jump was we were much more concerned about uh, things hanging off your body and the way that your body was shaped. So like it was like arms crossed across your chest, legs together. I think the risk being that like as you're going down, you're going to catch something on a rock or a twig. And then all of a sudden you're wildly out of control and bad things happen.
0: I will say for the record, I did not approve of jumping or slides for myself, mostly because I'd, we had met a nice lady who had a titanium leg on one leg because of a jump into water. And then she did a slide another time and broke her other leg. So that in com- combination with my body already aching enough, it was not on my agenda. The other thing I found fascinating was the flash flood risk. So we're very used to in the desert, if there's a 20% chance of rain or more, you do not go into those slots because the rock will not absorb any of the water and the catchment area above your canyon will just funnel all of that rainwater directly into an area that you're not likely to escape from. Very dangerous. We actually went out when there was light rain. Why was that less of a chance there for a flood Bin
1: the way that it was described to us is that the way that the soil is structured there it absorbs a lot of the water so in the desert right like it just flies right over the top goes into that canyon and it's just plowing through the pacific northwest i think a lot of it gets absorbed into the ground and then some of it goes into the canyon but you know to some extent you're already in a waterfall filled canyon
0: yeah, so it's more of a controlled flow is how it was described to us as the water rises from, from rains maybe up up canyon. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's podcast is brought to you by Woolrich. Since 1830, Woolrich has produced expensive clothing that makes it look like you belong outdoors while you're on a Zoom call. Today, Woolrich is proud to introduce the swag bag. Do you get embarrassed packing out number two on a short hike when your gluten intolerance meets your leave no trace ethic? Then the swag bag is for you. A sustainably sourced bedazzled leather pouch, the swag bag allows you or your pretend service animal to do your business anytime, anywhere. And the included quick-dry epoxy allows the swag bag to be hermetically sealed within minutes. When you get home, stick on the pre-printed label and the swag bag will be FedExed overnight to Woolrich's Recycling Facility to create fertilizer for the reforestation of Patagonia. The swag bag has been named the number one way to handle your number two by the Bureau of Land Management And the Boy Scouts of America. Woolrich's swag bag.
1: It's your duty. What do you think of that, Vin? That sounds great. I want one of those.
0: So let's talk about a few equipment considerations that we had we have this equipment too in the desert but we don't have it quite as handy so the two things one is a whistle we talked about the importance of being able to single the whistle but we had it hanging from our helmet to make sure that it was easily available at all times especially to signal trouble what was the other thing again we carry with us but we had to make sure it was on our person
1: the knife like the knife a lot of times i'll have in my pack i'm probably going to use it to cut webbing 90 of the time it is highly unlikely in the it. that I'm going to be in a situation where I am planning to cut the rope that I'm on. So having it ready to do that didn't make me super happy, but it made sense when they explained it.
0: Yeah. And sometimes if you're being waterboarded and drowning in a flow, you probably want to take the fall into a nice water pool as opposed to drowning. We saw a lot of people carrying a grivel Vlad. So that's a carabiner with a built-in rigging plate. The reasons were good. There was a lot to attach. We talked about how they do their anchors putting that all into one or two small anchor points tend to be a kind of a pile. And so having that rigging plate allowed people to come up and clip into something very nicely and keep it separate from everything else. So if you have someone rappelling down, the anchor manager's clipped in because it's close to an edge, you have a next person who's gonna rappel coming to clip in, you need to have room for all that and to not interfere with the ability to release the person should they get into trouble. The other is a lot of them had a crawl. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I I would say almost 90% of them were running a crawl, which is a chest ascender system. And I think that came from the, the sense that when you need to ascend, it potentially is an emergency. And the crawl is really nice for that, right? Like you just clip right into your chest, throw in a foot loop or something like that, and now you're ready to go up.
0: A few other random observations, decontamination. We don't have to do that or we don't do that in the desert. So this was washing off and decontaminating all of our gear, including our wetsuits, our harnesses, our bags, the ropes, et cetera. And the reason was because I guess there's spores that will get onto your equipment and your clothing. And there's some nasty, ugly algae that can go from one Canyon to another if you do not. So they are trying to limit some of the ugliness that's in Canyon A, B, and C and trying to keep it out of the more pristine ones. So we were happy to help and that was an interesting requirement and suggestion for us. So the other thing I noticed Vin, you did too, is how they a lot of them packed their rope bag was
1: different. I asked a number of times about what was happening here when I was seeing it. So the system that they used was called spaghetti. Well, that's what one person said. And so it was a system where you've got the empty rope bag in front of you. You've got a pile of rope that just came down and you are not coiling But you are building small back and forth coils in your hand that are small. And then you turn it upside down and shove it down. And you just repeat that process as opposed to, you know, part of the reason that we notice because it's very different from what we do. And so we would put a carabiner in our helmet strap to act as a redirect. And then we just shove all the rope down through there and it untangles as it does so.
0: Yeah, I would suggest our way is faster, but the only thing I could think of is, you know, putting the carabiner in your chin strap and taking it off and clipping the rope into your waist and doing what we generally do. I guess because they have a lot of smaller 15, 20 foot repels, maybe it's just not worth the time. And so it's doing that stuffing from one hand to another is quick because you're not having to waste time on maybe 40 feet of rope. Other thing you wanted to talk about, Vin, is their sense of community and the teamwork in the canyon, what that looked like compared to what we're used to.
1: One of the things I noticed was how they approached the aspect of teamwork. Both communities obviously use teamwork. And at the same time, everyone is responsible for their individual safety and the things that they bring. But there were differences. You know, like we talked about sequencing in the desert. Everyone's going to, you know, it's very highly likely for us to go to the rappel, throw down the rope. Repel down and then keep moving forward because you know it's one of the things that we got criticized that there's a high there's a high aspect of efficiency in the desert to some extent i think because more so than the pacific northwest is we're kind of in a race against the clock like we're in the sun we're running out of water you know we only have so many calories with us whereas the pacific northwest was significantly more idyllic in the climate but significantly more dangerous in the rappels themselves And so like the aspects of like having an anchor manager that is responsible for that repel, the things where you're like combining packs, all of these to me speak to a community that is a little bit more focused on certain aspects of like, like how do we get through this safely?
0: Let's go through a couple of final thoughts on canyoneering and wet canyons, Van, My first one is makes for some amazing pictures, very picturesque, both the canyons themselves and looking like the boss coming down in waterfalls. Beautiful pictures, great for the gram.
1: How about you? It was super fun, right? There's just like child joy being in the water, you're in slides and you're jumping into pools and everything's green around you and you're swimming and throwing things to each other. It was really nice for that side of it.
0: I would say on the negative, it was much more technical, much more stressful than I'm used to going through canyons because it felt like the water was always trying to kill you. Slippery rocks were always trying to break my ankle. And so there was a lot more to pay attention to. So even though it was pretty in a different way than the Red Rock Desert Southwest, I found it to be much more stressful. The last thing I'll close with is thanks to the Pacific Northwest community. I know it's a developing community. They're doing a great job and we appreciate them hosting this rendezvous. We hope to be at it again next year. And thank you for hosting us cranky bolt war fighting desert candineers. Thanks everybody. Talk to you next time.